here this morning. It's kind of a rainy, humid, grody day outside, but it is good to be with God's people and to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, this morning, we are going to look at a pretty exciting passage. Uh, this is Mark's account of Jesus' famous Olivet Discourse. It is by far, by far, the longest speech by Jesus that Mark records in his, in his gospel. Uh, his, in his account of Jesus' life, this is by far the longest speech, and it is the one which uh, points us toward the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, uh, post-resurrection return of Christ. Okay, this is the one that is the most hotly debated part of the of Mark's gospel in terms of what this means and when it will take place and how it all fits together. And it is a prophetic section of scripture. Um, and I want us just as as we get started to just give you a kind of a, a few kind of opening words about prophecy and how it works. Okay, first of all, two dangers we need to avoid. Uh, the first danger, and I think these are both uh, equal and opposite dangers, uh, the first one is what I would call prophetic obsession. Uh, these are people who go through their Bible and they only want to study the parts that are prophetic, that have to do with future events, and they spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what John is talking about by the mark of the beast and who the Antichrist was and, and or will be and whether or not... Um, you know, the, uh, the bowl judgments, uh, fit, how they fit into the, the trumpet judgments and all of this kind of stuff. And they just get very, very wrapped up in the whole thing. And they just get kind of obsessed with it to the exclusion of the rest of the Scripture and what it has to say about how you ought to live now rather than in the future. And on the other end of the spectrum are people that have what I would call prophetic apathy, where they just... They know that part of the scripture is prophetic, and they just kind of, I don't really understand all that. It's complicated. Uh, some of the imagery is weird, and I, I don't get it. And so, you know, I just figure that Jesus will come back someday in some fashion, and I will be there when it happens, and it'll all kind of figure out. And I don't care how it all works, okay? But here's the thing that you need to know. About a third of the content of your, of your Bible either is prophetic, pertaining to events that will happen in the future, or was prophetic at the time it was written. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just simply ignore one out of every three things God has to say to me in his word. And so if we're going to understand our Bible, we're going to have to understand the prophetic word that's there. And I, we're going to try to work through that and put this in terms that are understandable. Uh, one of the things that you need to know about prophecy is that oftentimes the prophet will give you uh, a sign. And a sign is a near-term event. This is on your outline, okay? I'm giving you lots of stuff to fill in today because I want to make sure that we all get this, okay? Okay. Um, a, prophet, uh, a, a sign is a near-term event that confirms the truth of the prophet's words. How do you know if someone is a true prophet? Well, if what they say comes true. Well, what if it's way in the future? 
You know, it's real easy for somebody to stand up and say, I am the prophet of God, and you all should listen to me, right? But how do you distinguish when both, when two guys are standing there and they're saying, well, 25 years from now, 25 years from now, this guy might be dead. And we need to know whether or not to follow him today. So what the true prophets of God would often do is they would give a near-term event that, that, if it comes true, will confirm the truth of what they said. Okay? Let me give you some examples. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin, and he's pointing, I believe, to a particular woman. The virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And before he grows up to become a man, before he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the two kings that you fear, and he's talking to King Ahaz of Judah. And so he says, the two kings that you, fa- that you fear, Pekah, king of Israel, and I believe it's Rezin, king of Aram, are go- their kingdoms are going to be demolished by the Assyrians within 12 years. You don't need to be afraid. Now, of course, Matthew points us to the greater fulfillment of the virgin being with child and the child being Emmanuel, God with us. Let me give you another one, okay? You all remember this one. An angel comes and speaks to a group of shepherds on a hillside outside Jerusalem, and he says to them, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. How do they know that what the angel said was true? Because when they go into town, into Bethlehem, they're going to find a baby. Does that baby look like the Messiah? No. It's a kid wrapped in strips of cloth laying in a feed trough. Kind of an inglorious beginning for the career of Messiah, right? But when you see this kid, you will know the Messiah has been born. You're going to give him a near-term event that will confirm what I have said is true. Okay? Now, Jesus is going to give his disciples a sign that's going to confirm it's going to be fulfilled within their lifetime. And it's going to confirm that what he says to them is true, that he is truly from God, and that they can trust his words. Okay? And we're going to look at that. One of the other things you need to know about prophecy is this, that very often the prophet will mix near events and far events. And they will appear in the, con- in the same context. And you'll need to be able to distinguish between what is near and what is far. And the best example I know of is this. We went out west this summer as a family, and we saw the mountains and saw the Grand Canyon and hiked through Zion uh, National Park and saw a lot of neat stuff. But when you're in the mountains, a lot of times distances are deceiving. And you see this mountain and you see another one that looks like it is right next to it from a distance, right? But in reality, there's like a 60-mile wide valley in between this mountain and that one, right? 
And when the prophet speaks, very often they talk about events like there's these two mountains that are right next to each other. Only there's a vast expanse of time in between them. And Jesus is going to do that in this passage. In this passage, what you have intermixed uh, is predictions of the imminent, about to happen, destruction of the temple, uh, along with more distant predictions of the coming of Christ. And the, the destruction of the temple is itself the sign of Jesus' coming. As soon as the temple is destroyed, you know Jesus, you're in the last days from that day until whenever Jesus comes back. You're in the last days. It's the sign that is near term that confirms the truth of the fact that Jesus is coming back. Okay? Now, let's look at this passage. I'm going to have to just be blowing and going today, okay? So try to keep up. Um, we're, we're going to be short on time. I can already see that. All right. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. 
Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Uh, Now, let me set the scene. It's Wednesday night, and the disciples and Jesus are leaving Jerusalem for the last time prior to the crucifixion. They will not go back in again until after Jesus is captured uh, late on Thursday night and dragged in for the trial. And as they're leaving, the disciples comment on how beautiful the temple looks and how massive the stones are. Now, you know, a lot of people read that and they go, well, you know, these guys are hillbillies from Galilee, and so they just had never seen a building before. But you have to understand how big some of these stones are. Some of the stones used in the construction of the temple, uh, according to Josephus, were up to, in our, to put it in our measurement, 40 feet long, 25 feet wide, and 11 feet high. When they say massive stones, massive stones, okay? And it was, the temple itself was constructed of white limestone, had a golden roof, and was decorated all around with gold. It occupied the entire temple complex about one-sixth of the total land area of the city. It stood as one of, uh, it really ought to rank among the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a beautiful, massive, incredible place. And so they are right to comment. In fact, the rabbis said that those who have never seen the temple have never seen a beautiful building. And so they were right to comment, and as they're commenting, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left standing on another. And so four of the disciples, quite naturally, are curious about this. And they get over to the Mount of Olives, which is about a mile outside of the old city of Jerusalem, and they ask, well, when will that happen? And Jesus doesn't answer them directly or right away. What he starts talking about is warning them against false messiahs that are going to arise. He says, you're going to get a lot of guys that, that will come after me and claim to be the messiah. And in fact, you did. After Jesus, there were a lot of people claiming to be the messiah that rose. And one of the, one of the most, more famous ones was a man named Simon Bar Kokhba about 130 A.D., and he claimed to be the Messiah. And, of course, he was killed along with his followers, and that revolt uh, against the Romans died down. 
Uh, you had a lot of guys around, around the time the temple was destroyed that rose up and made claims to be the Messiah, and they weren't. And he says, these guys will deceive a lot of people. Don't be deceived. Know that they're coming. And he also predicts that there's going to be a rise in warfare and in natural disasters and in famines. But these things do not indicate the end of the world. They are, according to Jesus, the beginning of birth pains. Uh, I, we have had four children. I am glad that I have never experienced birth pains. All right? And, I, and those of you who have had children know that a lot of times you have contractions for a long time, sometimes weeks. You have Braxton Hicks, and then, uh, and then for like several days up prior to the delivery, you've got birth contractions. And your body is working. And then all of a sudden, finally, labor starts and it's on, right? Um, and it's, okay, honey. Um, I still remember when our first child was born, when Sarah was born, um, I, I had done a big evangelistic outreach and, and we had shared the gospel with a bunch of people. And I came home and it was 10 o'clock at night and Karen is up watching Indiana Jones on TV and I'm exhausted. I've been up all day. Uh, just spoken to the big group of people, and and she says, "Honey, I think tonight's the night." I said, "Well, uh, start timing. I'm going to bed. <laughs> if they're still hurting in two hours, <laughs> come get me up." <laughs> okay. Two hours later, she said, "It's time. Let's go." And I I got out of bed, got dressed, and off we went. Right. And um. Actually, I think that might have been with Ashley. That was not Sarah. Um, but that was with Ashley. See how tired I was? I don't even remember what kid it was. But uh, that was with Ashley. Uh, we were in Iowa then. Um, but anyway, um, but these are the beginning of the birth pains. In other words, this is not the delivery. This is just the beginning. And the reason that he spends a lot of time emphasizing this is because, I believe, that he is trying to teach us that the destruction of the temple is the sign that initiates the last days, the time during which Christ will return. And so he doesn't want people to think that it will be right soon afterward. It will go on for a while. And he says, on top of that, you will be handed over to the local councils. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. You're going to give testimony before kings and governors. And the gospel has to be preached to all nations before the end come. And it's ethne, all the people groups. Okay? One of the reasons that we're involved in ministry to unreached people groups around the world is this verse. The gospel is to be preached to all nations before the end comes. And he says, look, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be tried. You're going to speak by the Holy Spirit before the people who arrest you and persecute you and beat you and kill you. And you will be betrayed family member to family member. Children against their parents, brothers against their brothers, fathers and their be betrayed by their children. Everyone will hate Christians. But you've got to persevere in the midst of these hard days because they're going to last a while. 
They're the beginning of the birth pains. Uh, And by the way, one of the primary proofs that you really belong to Jesus is that you stand when persecution comes. It says, he who perseveres to the end, who stands firm to the end, will be saved. The proof that you really belong to Jesus is when the world gets hot, that you still stand. That you will take death over apostasy. Stand firm to the end. Uh, And then, at the end of all that, he talks about, okay, well now here is the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. Verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. Uh, He is trying to make it clear to them. Um... So that they know what's going on. He does not want people to think that the destruction of the temple means Jesus is coming back immediately. He won't be. And he's trying to make that clear to them. Even today, there are people out there, they're called preterists, who make the argument that Jesus came back in AD 70. Jesus says that he's not going to. Okay? So be clear on that. Um uh, it's not the end yet. And beginning in verse 14, he gives them the sign so that they know when the temple is going to be destroyed so they can be sure to be out of Jerusalem and Judea. And he calls it the abomination that brings desolation or the abomination of desolation. Now that term is one that Daniel uses to prophesy about a coming event that happened under a king uh, of Syria named Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. And he came in and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. And Daniel called it the abomination of desolation. It was what defiled the temple and its worship. And so when Jesus uses that term again, he's predicting that there's going to be an event future to Jesus that is going to defile the temple and make it unsuitable for worship in a similar way. And there are about seven different events that have been debated and discussed as possibilities for this historically prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Probably the best one has to do with the rise of a group called the Zealots who wanted to drive out the Romans by force. Well, in 67 and 68 AD, this group of people got control of the temple and they appointed a, a person who was not a descendant of Aaron to be the priest, which was a violation of the Levitical law. And then on top of that, when people resisted them, they spilled their blood in grotesque ways all throughout the temple grounds and defiled it. And then, of course, within, a, within about a year, Jerusalem was laid siege and the temple was destroyed. This was the abomination that brings desolation, I believe. The spilling of blood in the temple by these zealots against their brothers, their fellow Jews that defiled it. Uh, And Jesus says, those who see this sign, when you see the defiling of the temple taking place, it's time to leave now. And Jesus uses hyperbolic language to underline that and and he says don't go down off the roof don't go uh, in from the field to get your cloak don't go down into the house off the roof to get anything get out of dodge why 
Because if you dilly-dally around, after this began to happen, the Romans' army began to march. And it, you know, it, it wasn't blitzkrieg war. You had a little time, but you didn't have a lot. And once they got there, they surrounded the city, built siege ramps against it, and sacked it. And if you got caught on the inside of that, you were probably killed. And so you need to get out. And Jesus says, when you see this happen, you leave immediately. Those who see the sign are to get out. And, and verses 18 to 23 tell us how bad it's going to be. It will be so bad, you need to pray for God's grace that the abomination of desolation doesn't happen in winter. Because winter is going to swell, the, winter in Israel swells the creeks and the rivers and makes it hard to travel. And it's tough on nursing moms and pregnant women because even though they should be experiencing the joy of new life, their condition makes it hard for them to travel at speed and they need to. They need to get out of there because judgment is going to fall. The nation has rejected its Messiah and so they're going to get another kind of ruler. Titus. And he says it's going to be so bad that if God did not cut short those days, that no no one of the elect would survive. And by the elect, I take that not to refer to all believers generally. I take that to refer to the believing community among the Jewish nation. Because at this time, as Jesus is speaking, there is no such thing as the church. That hasn't happened yet. And those who believe in the living God are among the nation of Israel. And he says, for the sake of the elect, those who will believe out of the nation of Israel, I have cut short those days. But if I hadn't cut them short, the nation of Israel itself would not survive. Hundreds of thousands of Jews are killed in the sack of Jerusalem. And the rest are dispersed across all of the ancient Roman Empire. And judgment falls, and it is terrible. And Jesus says, in those days there are going to be people who are going to arise as false Christs and false prophets, and they're going to perform signs and miracles and convince a lot of people that they are the Messiah. He says, don't you believe it? Don't believe that Jesus has come back when this happens. Why? Because when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, it will be obvious. Okay? When Jesus comes, it will be obvious. And the sign of Christ's coming is the temple's destruction. How do we know that these guys aren't Jesus and they're not to be believed? Because they're going to arise in the days prior to the temple being destroyed. And once it is, we know that they are not the Messiah because Jesus is going to come after that. And when he comes, it's going to be obvious. The destruction of the temple was this near-term sign that certified Jesus' words. As true. Because Jesus is making this statement about 37 years in advance. 
but it's a near-term sign relative to the disciples. Once you see this, you know that my words are true. You know that I speak from God, and everything I have said is true. This is the sign that's going to happen. And when, when I come, it will be obvious. No one will be able to debate whether or not Jesus has returned, right? People do sometimes, like I say, there are people out there who want to argue that Jesus returned in AD 70. Really? And that we are now living in the millennium. Really? According to Jesus, when he comes, no one will wonder whether or not he showed up. Because in, the, in those days, following that distress, in other words, the temple will be destroyed and there will be time that will go on after that. Following that, then the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. There will be signs in the heavens that you will see. And then after that, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Will you be able to recognize that Jesus has showed up? Yes, it will be obvious. And he will gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth, right? Everybody who belongs to Jesus will come to him, right? It will be obvious. Now, uh, in verses 28 to 31, you get... the certainty of the temple's destruction. Jesus is going to underline, this is going to happen. You can know for sure it's going to happen. He says, when you see fig leaves, you know summer's coming. If you live in Israel, grow a lot of fig trees there. He says, when the fig trees start to leaf out, you know summer's right around the corner. In the same way, when you see the sign, you know judgment is coming. When you see the temple defiled, you know judgment is going to fall. It's going to happen. You see what Jesus is doing? He talks about there's going to be a long period of suffering. Here's the sign of the temple's destruction. Now let me talk about when I'm coming back. Now he goes back to talk about the temple's destruction. When you see the sign, you know judgment is coming. Just as surely as you know when the fig leaves come out, you know, ju- you know the summer is coming. When you see the sign happen, the defilement of the temple, you know judgment is on its way right after that. The nation has rejected its Messiah, and they will be judged for it. And he says, in fact, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. What are all these things? The destruction of the temple and the persecution of Christians surrounding it. All the events that led up to the destruction of the temple and everything that followed it, Jesus predicted. This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. There were people who were talking with Jesus, who lived through it. John the Apostle is one of them. Okay? People of that generation that heard Jesus give this prophecy, heard it and saw it happen in their lifetime. Um, he says, you can know for sure this is going to happen. They will out, my words will outlast heaven and earth. Judgment is that certain. There's no undoing this at this point. It's not, well, maybe if people repent, 
then the temple won't be destroyed. No, God has made his decision. And then in verses 32 to 37, you get the certainty of Christ's coming that gets underlined. Um, Notice the pattern here again. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, then predicts his return. Then he underlines the certainty of the destruction of the temple. Now he's going to underline the certainty of his return. Um, These two events are interrelated again. One is the sign that the other will occur. Okay, And that's why the back and forth between them. So that you see the near event related to the far event. And this provides us assurance that this event that's in the future will happen. A couple things I want you to notice out of these verses here, 32 to 37. Number one, nobody knows the timing, not even Jesus. There was a guy that came out, uh, this has been now 22 years ago, uh, came out with a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus' Return Will Happen in 1988. Right? You remember, some of you remember that book, right? It sold like hotcakes. All right? And then, he, and then he, it didn't happen. And so he came out with a new book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1989. And after that, it was too embarrassing. <laughs> um, and he hadn't been heard from since. But he should have known better. Because Jesus says, no one knows the timing, not even the Son. Now, I don't know how that works in the context of a triune God in which all of the persons of the deity are equal, and yet somehow the Son does not know things the Father knows. Okay? Maybe Jesus is limited in his knowledge in, in his incarnate state. I don't know. Okay? You'll have to ask the Lord when you get to heaven. Okay? Because not your, your pastor surely does not understand this. All right, Um, But he says that because no one knows the timing, you're to keep watch like the servants of a master gone away on a journey. We don't know when he'll be back, but we know he is coming. How do we know? The temple was destroyed. And the temple's destruction is the sign that Jesus is coming back. And we know it will be soon. And so we need to be doing what pleases him. Now, let me wrap this up. The prophetic word is not given to satisfy our curiosity. That is not the reason. God does love us. He does want us to know some things about the future, but it isn't simply so that he can make us all feel really smart intellectually. It is given for two reasons. Number one, it's given to motivate us to godly living in the here and now. Uh, When I was a kid, my mother used to take us periodically over to a friend's house. There were four of us, uh, and we were all relatively close in age, and we were um, a handful. I'll just say say it that way, all right? Um, My children are God's revenge on me and my siblings for what we did to my mother. (laughs) Okay, I think we aged that woman 20 years um, for every year we were with her. But uh, she would leave us at a friend's house, and so she could go grocery shopping or whatever in peace. 
And she would tell us, now, here are the standards of behavior that I expect. And while you are here, these are some things that I would like you to do. And I will return. And when I do, I will bring reward and judgment with me. And you get to choose which you will receive. And this works exactly the same way, right? We do not know at what time the master is returning. But we know that he is returning. Amen? And there will be praise, glory, and honor for those, whose, those servants whom the master finds doing his will. Amen? And there will be lack of reward and discipline for those servants found not doing the master's will, right? And so the prophetic word is given to us to give us assurance that the master is returning and to therefore motivate us, since we do not know the timing, to obey God in the here and now, to get busy preaching the gospel to all nations, amen? To be living in a holy way because God is holy, be holy, therefore, because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Amen? Uh, it's to motivate us to do the things that the Master expects us to be doing when he returns. The other reason is this. It's to give us reassurance that we are going to have victory. And to answer for us in advance the question of whether or not it is worth it to love and serve and follow Jesus Christ. Because there are going to be days, and Jesus tells us there are going to be days. He says, father is going to be betrayed by his child, or he is going to be the betrayer of his child. Brother will betray brother. You'll be persecuted and flogged and arrested and killed for the sake of the gospel in Jesus. Even if that never happens to you as a believer in Jesus Christ, as I've said before, you do not get King's X on your life. And so you're going to have suffering and illness and death and pain. And you're going to wonder, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And the prophetic word is given to us to say, yes, it is worth it. It is worth it. Because guess what? As dark as it gets, as bad as it can be, and it can be bad, we are redeemed people who struggle against our sin and who live in the midst of a fallen world amongst depraved people in a dark culture. It can be bad. The prophetic word is here to say Jesus is coming back, and his reward is with him. And there will be one day the heavens torn open and a rider on a white horse, and him who's seated upon it, his name is Faithful and True, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword to slay the wicked. And the armies of heaven will ride with him, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, and wicked people and wickedness and evil will be destroyed. And we who are the servants of the living God, who are adopted into the kingdom of the family of God, will be with the Lord on the day he returns. Amen? Is it worth it? 
Yes, it is worth it. It is not given to satisfy our curiosity, but to reassure us and motivate us because Jesus is coming back for us. And it'll be worth it to serve him. Those who have lived in wickedness and evil and sin all of their life on the day when Christ returns would give everything they have and everything they have done to trade places with the least person in the kingdom of God. Is it worth it? Yes. As tough as it is some days to be a follower of Jesus, it's worth it. Because Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which though it is hard to get our arms around sometimes and in some places, is very...